Welcome to the future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, principal and founder of LVG & Co., an independent strategy consultancy based in New York City. Through quick and candid conversations with innovative leaders, we aim to foster new thinking and explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Welcome to the Future of XYZ. This week, uh, we have the distinct privilege of speaking with Esther Pantlon. Esther, welcome to the Future of XYZ. Thanks, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Esther and I are going to be chatting about the future of the UN SDGs, also known as the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, uh, one of the most important pieces of pieces of information and guidance, I would say, that has ever been created in the history of man, so uh, in my humble opinion, so no small feat to talk about. Um, Esther is an uh, amazing guest to speak about this. She helped create these SDGs. Uh, she is currently the head of partnerships, policy, and communications at the UN's Cap Capital Development Fund, which we'll talk a lot about, also known as UNCDF. Uh, she spent 10 years as a diplomat at the U.S. State Department. Uh, she served in Guangzhou, China, London, and then her last four years as a diplomat were actually in the U.S. mission to the U.N., working on these U.N. SDGs. Prior to joining uh, the Department of State, she was a journalist. She started in Alaska and ended at the Council on Foreign Relations and attended Stanford University. It's a pretty illustrative career uh, so far, and I can't wait to dive in. Um, so here we go. I think the first question, Esther, for listeners and viewers is what are the UN SDGs? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Lisa, and thanks again for giving me this opportunity. The SDGs are the Sustainable Development Goals. They are the development agenda of the United Nations negotiated by 193 member states and agreed by all member states in September 2015. And they are the successor to the Millennium Development Goals, which was the previous development agenda that ran from 2000 to 2015. Those were eight goals focused on health, education, and poverty, and they were meant only for developing countries. The SDGs are 17 goals with 169 targets. They're much more comprehensive. They cover everything from gender equality to ocean protection. And they reflect essentially the key priorities of every member state on earth. They were negotiated, which was quite different from previous development agendas. In the past, you know, groups of experts would come up with an agenda and deliver it to poor countries and say, this is what you should be working on. But the poor countries said, well, you didn't really ask us. And yeah, girls' education is important, but my biggest priority is youth unemployment, right? So there was a real disconnect between needs on the ground in poor countries and what countries themselves thought were important and what these experts were coming up with in development agendas. So when it came time to negotiate the SDGs, countries were very clear that they wanted to be part of the process and every country wanted to be part of the process. And that's one reason there are so many goals and that the process took so long. It was a three-year negotiation process was the most inclusive in history. The sessions were uh, live streamed. You could watch them, all the statements were public. And so the world really participated in creating this development agenda in a way that hadn't happened before. That's pretty remarkable. And as you say, I mean, they are very comprehensive. I mean, there are 17 high level goals which are, have been built into a beautiful kind of um, infographic that anyone can download um, by just Googling UN SDGs. Um, but then within each of those, they have targets, right? So for instance, you might in 
um, 11, which is about urban cities, et cetera, you might also have it about poverty reduction, how affordable housing and green spaces. So how those, as you say, represent all of the interests, more or less, the combined interests of these 193 member states who are involved in the negotiation. And, and the agenda is towards the 2030. I mean, we're, we're in mid-2021 now. How are we tracking on these UN SDGs so far? And, and, and in your role, where do you see the greatest kind of both opportunity and challenge? That's a great question. So I think we have made some progress and uh, viewers can go onto the UN site and find out what is the progress uh, towards the SDGs. Countries do voluntary reporting on their own SDG commitments. And every year at the United Nations, there's a high level political forum in the summer in July. They choose four or five goals to focus on and then countries will report on those goals specifically. So I'd say there's a wide range. You know, on some things, unfortunately before COVID, countries had been making very strong progress on poverty eradication, but COVID has kicked a lot of countries back, particularly the poorest. So that's been a real challenge. Um, on some other areas like gender equality, you know, one of the targets is trying to get equal representation of women and men in parliaments. We're still very far away from that in the United States, for example, but Rwanda is 50-50. So some countries have, yeah, exactly. So some countries have made great progress and other countries are working on it. So one aspect of the agenda is that it's universal. So it's for every country. So Norway is trying to reach 50%, you know, women in parliament, the same as uh, Bolivia, the same as Bhutan. So everyone has the same overall targets, things like poverty, of course, it's relative to what your poverty line is in your own country, but everybody's trying to get to the same goal, which is to kind of reach this vision of people, peace and prosperity by 2030. I'd say areas where we really need support are um, financing. There's not enough money to achieve the goals, especially poor countries. Their governments do not have enough money to make the investments that would be required for themselves to reach the goals. So for example, one very pragmatic uh, lack is many poor country governments do not have complete census bureaus. So they don't have the capacity to count how many poor people they have. So then you have all these targets saying this many poor people have to move out of poverty. They don't even have a baseline. Right. So if you don't know how much you're starting with, how do you know what much what progress you've made, right? So when countries say they need capacity building, it's that. It's send us demographers, send us you know researchers, send us capacity so we can build up our ability to count the, and track the things we need to do to show what progress we need to make. And then expand that across every level, right? Lawyers to negotiate mining contracts, um, government officials who know how to do tax collection, you know, uh, lawyers who know how to prevent money from going offshore. Like at every level of governance, you need skilled capacity and poor countries lack that. Then you have to factor in what COVID has done, which is really just kick back all the poor countries on their ability to progress on these goals. I think, I, I mean, you raised so many good points in there and I think it's really interesting, obviously, and I, I'm sorry to have jumped in, but you know, we're talking a lot in these goals. I mean, there's there's the social inequities, right, That that are, very, very um, different by country uh, and by region and by culture and all these things, but they exist everywhere. There are social inequities around the world, right, that have, again, been exacerbated by COVID. Then, however, and I think I want to get to the financing part that you just talked about. There isn't enough money, which is so crazy when you look at the gap of the wealth gap that has been created in the world, especially now with COVID. But we're talking about economic development. I mean, historically, that's really what we're talking about in terms of this, even though it's peace, prosperity. But a lot of this is about 
social inequities come out of economic you know, inequity and, and vice versa. It's chicken and egg challenge. So the work that you're doing right now at the UN Capital Development Fund is really giving money, if I'm not mistaken, and working with these what are called LDCs, the least developed countries. Um, and so getting, you know, getting some of these, these financing as well as other skills in, in place. Can you talk about that work and specifically what an LDC is and, and how we categorize them and, and, and the future of that? Absolutely. So an LDC is a least developed country defined by a UN standard, which means that their per capita income is less than $1,000 per year. So these are the 46 poorest countries on earth, and they're assessed uh, every three years to see if they have graduated from LDC status, which means have they met some benchmarks to show that they are no longer least developed countries, but can be considered lower middle income countries. So they're essentially the poorest countries. And what UNCDF does is help direct voluntary donations from other governments towards these least developed countries to meet the needs that they tell us they have. So capacity and financing. So we do things like train local government officials to collect taxes and bring citizens into the participatory planning process. So when the uh, city or the municipality builds an infrastructure project, it's something that people actually want and can use. Uh, we do things like give grants, loans, and guarantees to small business in least developed countries so they can grow and then access capital from commercial banks because banks are very reluctant to lend to starting out entrepreneurs in every country. Um, so we do these really targeted interventions trying to build the capacity of the government to serve its citizens better and then to boost the capacity of individuals and private sector businesses to succeed because we know they face challenges that are greater than what any of us face in a developed country. Which, I mean, it's, first of all, it's remarkable work and, and, and congratulations for all of it. I, I, I wasn't clear, it's interesting, that there are voluntary donations from, from gov other governments. This is not private money that is being channeled. No, it's not. So I would say 99% of our donations come from governments. They're part of the official development assistance commitments those wealthy country governments make to support poorer countries through the multilateral development system. We are now trying to get more private sector investors, family offices, high net worth individuals involved because one of the things the SDGs realized is that it's not just governments. Governments can't do it by themselves. We must have private sector investors and business engaged because the volumes of flows from governments to other governments are nowhere near what's enough to achieve the SDGs. Absolutely. And of course, we have questions of inflation and everything else when governments start printing money. So the and the commitments that come and the expertise that comes from private sector, as you talk about lawyers and things like this, this is all private sector training. So very interesting. There's so many things I'd love to touch on. One question I just have, you talk about the, the 46 poorest countries, right? And, and these benchmarks to graduate. Have you in your time so far at UNSDF seen countries graduate or have you seen countries actually fall back into that that denomination both so vanuatu recently graduated they were the most um, recent graduating countries country but they were ready several years before and they kept falling back because of uh, environmental crises so they would be ready. It's an island state right that's right so uh, climate change they would get a flood or a hurricane and then we'd be pushed back uh, Bangladesh is about to graduate, so we're very proud of them and excited about that. Bhutan is about to graduate. So most of the Southeast Asian least developed countries are moving clearly on a path towards graduation. And by 2030, most of the Southeast Asian ones, so Cambodia, Laos, Nepal, should be close to graduating status. 
the ones that are quite intractable and have a longer path are sub-Saharan African LDCs, many of which are conflict-affected states or post-conflict. So you can see that all of the benchmarks and the targets that you need to make in order to get to graduation are much harder to establish if you are affected by conflict. So that's where uh, the countries need the most support. Yeah, that makes so much that makes so much sense. Um, and in terms of kind of when you talk about, you know, so there, there's two two sides, right? Training government officials so that they can do things on their own eventually, right? And lead. There's the leadership component of all of this, right? Taking best practice from the developed world. But then there's this, I guess it's microfinancing, right? And venture capital, really. Yeah. It, so it, exactly. We started out in microfinance, right? Providing loans to very poor, poor people. And then we started making grants to companies that are expanding goods and services to the base of the pyramid. So saying that there is a market to where you can make money serving very poor people, let's say very small loans or cell phone coverage or letting uh, people have the ability to pay bills on their cell phone, that especially in East Africa, there's been so much innovation around digital payments that there are businesses coming out of them. In fact, we just did um, a study or a report. There have been five African unicorns in the last five years. So $1 billion dollar valuations, and those are fintech or e-commerce companies. So in many parts of the world, this innovation is moving faster than it is in the United States, right? In East Africa, they were using digital payments well before I ever used my phone to pay for anything in the United Absolutely. States. So we started out making grants to these companies and then some of them really prospered. And we realized if we made loans to companies that had great ideas, that had SDG impact and could be viable businesses, that's yet another way to make the grant money stretch farther and achieve the SDG impact we're looking for. And how, and, and are these, so you talk about grants and loans, right? So, I mean, how is it different? I mean, it is different, but how is it different from say an Acumen or, or any of these other micro loan companies who are also operating in similar spaces of these, you know, least developed countries? Yeah, I'd say it's very similar, right? Many of us have similar models because we're all focusing at this last, we call it last mile. Other people will call it kind of base of the pyramid, um, the massive need of poor people to access finance. Right, And then all the entrepreneurs who are looking for finance to grow their business and can't get it from banks. So we're all looking at this big market, which is how do we get more money in the hands of people who can use it to pull themselves and their families out of poverty? Yeah, yeah, that totally, it's, it's quite amazing because the impact that you can make at that very micro level, of course, you know, it, it has an, uh, I don't know what you call it, it's, it's kind of a mushroom effect, I guess. Yeah, we call it catalytic capital or leverage where, you know, one dollar of aid assistance, if you spend it, has a certain impact. But if you invest it and then attract commercial capital on top of it, you can increase your impact by four times, six times, you know, uh, many more times the value of that particular dollar. Catalytic capital is the term. I love that. It's, uh, it, 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 it speaks volumes to what it's supposed to do. And so I want to go back to, you know, your own career path, Esther, which has been really fascinating. I mean, beginning as a journalist, you know, going into the State Department and now you know, as a diplomat and now working with the UN. Um, what do you see when we think about the future of the UN SDGs specifically? How has your experience kind of shaped your perspective on them, on the work that's happening, and on the ginormous, I think, lift of these 17 goals um, for the world? Yeah, well, I think I'm very optimistic, 
right? So I was a journalist because I wanted to kind of find out about the world and travel and talk to a lot of people. I joined the State Department because the image of America that was being broadcast overseas was not consistent with my image of my America that I knew grow growing up here, right? That my America is multiracial, it's democratic, it's um, meritocratic, you know, it's very encompassing of all the people who come here and make their lives in the United States. And I felt like that richness was not being reflected in, the, in our foreign policy. So I was in the State Department for 10 years. It was a great privilege to rec uh, represent America. But part of what I learned as a diplomat is that there's a lot of talking, right? The SDGs were three years of, you know, meetings, you know, just a, so much talking and discussion. And it's very necessary because when you try to take everyone's views into account, you need to spend a lot of time getting to know people and understanding their concerns. But then as soon as it was adopted, it was like, now what? okay, we have this beautiful piece of paper. How is this gonna make one person less poor or make somebody, one person's life better? So then you realize very quickly that without finance and action and commitments, all that talking is just talking. And the most beautiful roadmap is just a piece of paper and it can sit on a shelf forever and have no practical impact on anyone's life. So I think what's great about the SDGs is because it is such an accomplishment to get 193 countries to agree about anything, it's something on paper, right? It's an agreed list of aspirations. And even if we don't achieve them, we know that we have set this out as a, as a globe, as a global community to try to reach these goals for everybody. And it's focused a lot of attention on things that I think certainly Americans never thought of before. Sustainable consumption and production, right? Like nobody thought about that before five years ago. And now everyone is like checking their toothpaste to see if it's, you know, uh, recyclable in the plastic. Thank God. Right? So, and then the, the pressure on corporations to set net zero targets, and this is related to the Paris Climate Agreement as well, to set net zero targets, to have ESG indicators, to reflect social justice in their board you know, formation, in their policies, like those things did not exist before. And they're not all due to the SDGs, but they are in part due to the atmosphere created by the SDGs, which encouraged kind of all stakeholders to take an active interest in making our world better. And then to look around them and say, what can I do? right? I'm a consumer. I spend money. I pay attention to companies and their corporate behavior. I invest money at, at every stage of my impact on the world. What can I do to move things forward and move things a little, uh, make things a little better? So we're seeing, you know, young people not buying certain types of jeans because the water use is just too intense, right? We're seeing young people not choose to work for certain companies because their labor policies are not consistent with their values. We're, we're seeing tons of investors say, I want impact investment options for my retirement portfolio and my bank account and whatever. So I think the SDGs give the entire global community a way to articulate their aspirations for what they want the world to look like and some very pragmatic steps to try to get there. I, 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 I mean, it's, it's a beautiful summary and it's very obvious how close you are to this because I think when you, what, you, what you talk about here is it gives a framework for all stakeholders, right? And, and that public-private collaboration that I think we are starting to see more of because into your earlier point, there's a recognition that the public sector alone cannot make these changes, right? The impact is actually coming from populations consumption of natural resources, of unnatural resources, of produ produced you know, um, products, et cetera. So each decision that we all make is in fact where it matters. So very, very, very interesting. Um, I want to just close um, as we get here. I mean, there are 17 UN SDGs, right? 
Some of them, again, to your point, focus on climate, which of course we have a very limited window, according to most scientists, to impact at this point. Many have to do with social development and many have to do with kind of the intersectionality, if you will, of all of these factors, right? So my question for you as we close, Esther, is is there one or two or three of these UN SDGs that you believe are really, really important more than others? And, and how would you recommend listeners and viewers engage? Yeah, well, I, I think it's like your children, right? People are like, What's, who's your favorite child? And you, there's no good answer. So uh, I would recommend that listeners read them all, look at them all, and then choose your favorites, right? Because certain issues will be more important to certain people the same way they were to certain countries. So for example, uh, SDG five, the gender goal was massively pushed by the Nordic countries. They said, there's no agenda where you cannot push gender equality into the middle of it. And it was opposed by more conservative countries. So uh, SDG 16 on accountable institutions, good governance, free speech, access to uh, information for citizens was opposed by less democratic, more autocratic governments. Right. So I think depending what you care about as a person, there is an SDG for you. Right. There are some that are quite technical about building industrial capacity in Africa. But that's because for African governments, they know that they cannot lift their people out of poverty if they can't start manufacturing and producing goods and selling them. So I would say as an individual, take a look at the SDGs and see which you know, correspond or align most closely with your values read the targets. And then if you're really into it, read the indicators, because that's essentially, that's how you'll get graded on if you make progress on the SDGs. And some of them are very specific, right? It's reduce the maternal mortality rate to below one in 200,000. And that's quite specific for like health professionals, but there are also some that are specific like for legal structures, right? Make, allow women to inherit land, which is not possible in many countries. So there are ways that you can take action on any of those. You could start to, you know, you could write to your congressperson and say, on X issue, I would like you to X, Y, Z. So, and then the most basic thing you can do as say a person in the developed world is look at where your money is, right? Look at who is holding your money, where is it invested? What are you supporting with your pension fund, your retirement dollars, your kid's college fund? And if you don't like where it's going, move it. And then make sure that the people who are in charge of your money are, make, are expressing your values and wishes to the companies that they hold because that is a much more powerful advocacy tool than standing outside with a sign, right? If someone shows up at a shareholder meeting and says, we want you fill in the blank company to divest from all fossil fuels and they pass that resolution, then you're getting things moving. So there's a lot of things that individuals can do. There's a whole bunch that individuals can do that is obvious. Um, and is there a resource where you'd like to send people? I would say look up the UN SDGs. There's a site called the Department of Economic and Social Affairs at the UN, UNDESA. They are the kind of repository of all the official statistics about the SDGs. And you can read everything you would ever want to know about SDGs, including annual reports on how countries are doing. So uh, start out there and then just educate yourself and have a great time. I love it. Esther, thank you so much for joining us for this important topic. It's really excellent to speak with you. I appreciate it. Uh, and the work you're doing is phenomenal. I look forward to our continuing our conversation offline. Uh, and again, thank you for joining Future of XYZ. I like educate yourself on XYZ topics was, was, was a nice summary of yours. Thank you so much, Lisa. And thank you for the privilege of addressing your audience.
Absolutely. And for all of our listeners, do educate yourself on the UN SDGs. They matter. Your actions matter. Our actions matter. Mine too. Esther's too. Um, and if you don't already subscribe to Future of XYZ, please do so on YouTube. You can also find us as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, and most streaming platforms. And follow us on Future of XYZ on Instagram. We will see you next week. And Esther, again, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Future of XYZ. If you like what you've been hearing, please follow Lisa Grelnick on LinkedIn. Visit future-of.xyz or subscribe to the Future of XYZ podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.